When's the last time you were downright floored by the gospel? When's the last time you were absolutely flabbergasted by the good news? I mean, flat out awestruck, jaw dropped, mouth agape, wide-eyed wonder. We were just singing that even. Open up my eyes in wonder. When's the last time you were just completely overwhelmed and grateful for all that God has done for you in salvation? Listen, if you're a Christian, it's because the Holy Spirit made you a Christian. He made you alive. He regenerated you so that you could repent of your sins and trust in Christ. He made you alive in Christ He wrote the gospel on your heart. All you did was supply the sin. As Jonathan Edwards famously said, you contribute nothing to your salvation except the sin that made it necessary. All that we provided was the sin. That's all we brought to the table. And the Holy Spirit did the rest, all of it. And this is why boasting and arrogance and Pride and ego and swagger should never be characteristics of Christians or churches because it's all of grace. And that's what you get if you could squeeze the passage that we're looking at today. If you could kind of put these six verses in your hands and squeeze them and wring them out, you know what would come out? Grace. Trinitarian grace. And so after we've looked at these six verses today, I am praying and I hope and I want you to be awestruck that God saved you. That's our goal this morning, to be awestruck that God saved you. That we would once again savor and relish that God saves sinners. Now, I know you know that. I know you know the gospel. You hear it every single week here at Grace. I know you know that. I know that you know that God saved you. But I want you to feel it today. I want you to feel it in your bones. I want you to come away with this fresh, oh my goodness. When you think about what Christ has done for you through the Holy Spirit in the verses we're going to look at today. Just this fresh, oh my goodness. We should be awestruck looking at these verses today. We should be full of gratitude. We should marvel anew that the Trinitarian God loves and saves sinners. In fact, we should see the Trinity all over this passage because Paul is just going to cram the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit into these verses. God the Father will be mentioned three times. Typically when the New Testament refers to God, it's referring to God the Father. God the Father will be mentioned three times. Christ, Jesus, will be mentioned two times. And the Spirit will be mentioned two times. So Paul just kind of crammed the Trinity into these verses. In fact, if you're looking for a passage in God's Word that highlights the Trinity, add this one to your list. These verses 
are jam-packed with theology, salvation, regeneration. And theology always does its best work when it leads us to worship, when it leads us to just wide-eyed wonder. That's what theology should always do. Theology should always restore our awe and wonder of God. And I hope that happens today as we look at 2 Corinthians chapter 3. So turn there in your Bibles, 2 Corinthians chapter 3. Look at verse 1 and hear the word of the Lord. Are we beginning to commend ourselves again? Or do we need, as some do, letters of recommendation to you or from you? You yourselves are our letter of recommendation, written on our hearts to be known and read by all. Back then, churches would welcome preachers and teachers, and they would come with these letters of recommendation from apostles and pastors and leaders in the church. They didn't have iPhones. They didn't have email. So this is how you vouched for someone in ministry. That's what Paul's talking about here. Now, Paul is not against letters of recommendation. In fact, Paul has written some himself. He vouches for people in his letters. But Paul's point here is that he doesn't need this kind of letter of recommendation for the Corinthians because guess what? He's the one who planted this church. They know him. They are his letter of recommendation. They are proof of his ministry. So Paul shouldn't have to defend himself. The Corinthians know his heart. They know him. He was their pastor. Now, most likely lurking behind all of this are the super apostles, those false teachers who have invaded the church at Corinth, and they have bewitched the Corinthians. And so Paul is not just answering the Corinthians in these verses. He's really responding to the super apostles, and he's saying something like this, if you want proof of my credentials, if you want proof of my success in ministry, just look at the Corinthian church. They are my letter of recommendation. Look at their transformed lives. I planted this church in one of the worst, most sin-filled cities. And look what the gospel has done. See how the Spirit has done what He does best. Just take a look at all the transformed lives. So the super apostles who'd bewitched the Corinthians were wanting Paul to prove himself And making the Corinthians think, yeah, Paul, you need to prove yourself. You need to give us evidence of your apostolic credentials. You need to give us evidence of your leadership capabilities. They tricked the Corinthians and persuaded them that Paul was a terrible pastor. And now some in the church wanted Paul to prove himself, to demonstrate just what he had done. They wanted results. They wanted proof of his apostolic credentials, which is why Paul begins the letter by saying, Paul, an apostle of God. But the Corinthians were a living, breathing letter of recommendation for Paul. And unlike a letter that only a few people could read, because not everyone was literate back then, the Corinthians transformed lives, their lives, which had been transformed by the gospel, in a very pagan city, 
could be read and known by all people. This church was proof of Paul's credentials. They were his letter of recommendation. What the Corinthian church failed to see was that if Paul was an imposter, if he was not qualified to be a pastor or an apostle, then where did that put them? How did they come about? Who started this church? Paul did. And if he's a fake, then what of their church? What of their existence? Understand this, Grace. Churches and leaders are always under this kind of scrutiny. Some people want to gauge a church's success in ways that we never see in the Bible. They want to look at numbers. How many people attend? What uh, the finances are? How many baptisms have happened? Critics will always look at numbers as a litmus test for success. And they're often shaped by worldly business ideas and not the internal transforming work of the Holy Spirit that Paul talks about in this passage. As Paul Tripp says, if hard, disciplined, faithful, well-planned, appropriately executed, and joyful ministry work does not guarantee results then the lack of desired results should not define leadership failure. True failure is always a character issue. Failure is not first a matter of results. Failure is always first a matter of the heart. In ministry, success and failure are not a matter of results, but are defined by faithfulness. Faithfulness is what God asks of us. The rest is entirely up to His sovereignty and the power of His grace. So Paul the Apostle would agree with Paul Tripp. The power of God's grace was evident in Corinth. The Corinthian church was clear evidence of God's grace. All they had to do was look around at one another and see that their lives had been transformed by the Spirit, which is exactly what Paul says next. So look at verse 3. And you show that you are a letter from Christ delivered by us, written not with ink, but with the Spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. If the Corinthian church is a living letter, then who is the author? It's Jesus. Not Paul, not Timothy, not Titus, not Peter, not Apollos. Jesus is the author. Jesus is the one who transformed their hearts. He wrote with the Holy Spirit, if you will, on their hearts. Not with ink, not on tablets of stone like the Ten Commandments, but on human hearts. Jesus tattoos human hearts with the ink of the Holy Spirit when he regenerates them. Listen, Christian. If you're trusting in Christ today, in Christ alone for your salvation, then on your heart, it is written, it is finished. When the Spirit regenerated you, when He made you alive, He wrote on your heart these words, it is finished. No condemnation forgiven, adopted in Christ, blameless Righteous, secure, he wrote with indelible gospel ink. He tattooed the gospel all over your heart, Christian. 
He covered up the really bad tattoo that was, you already had on your heart. Did you know before you became a Christian, you had a really bad tattoo on your heart? Terrible work. And the terrible tattoo that was on your heart said this, in Adam, lost, dead, rebel, enemy, no regrets, if you know what I'm talking about. You ever seen that tattoo? It's supposed to say no regrets, and they misspell it, and it says no regrets. Well, the Holy Spirit fixed the tattoo of the law, God's law that was written on your heart that said, do this and you shall live. That was written on your heart, the law of God. And the Spirit covered over that. He came in and did a magical transformation with his tattoo, and he just put the word done. Because the law says do, do this and you shall live. But the gospel comes along and says done. It's been done for you. And so the Holy Spirit wrote done on your heart. He tattooed it there with indelible ink. That means that the perfect active obedience of Jesus, his perfect life of never sinning, of always obeying the law, that was tattooed on your heart, Christian, and it's there right now. Listen, if you're not a Christian and you're here today or you're watching on the live stream, this can be true of you today. You can be born again. You can be forgiven. You can be adopted into God's family. Will you repent? Will you cry out to Jesus and say, have mercy on me? And he will. And then you can be brought into his forever family. Now, if you know your Old Testament Paul is obviously linking back to passages in Ezekiel 36 and Jeremiah 31, which speak of the new covenant spirit transforming rock-hard human hearts. And that's the evidence of gospel transformation, isn't it? The human heart. And so when Paul looks to gauge the health of a church, where does he look? He looks at human hearts. He looks at lives that have been transformed and are being transformed by the Holy Spirit. He looks for gospel-tattooed hearts. Paul doesn't look at numbers and spreadsheets and budgets and building plans and bank accounts. He looks at human hearts. He looks for hearts that have the ink of the Holy Spirit tattooed on them. He doesn't look at programs, the programs of a church. He doesn't look at buildings. He looks for transformed lives, and so should we. To quote Paul Tripp again, he says, here is the danger. In local church ministry, it is much, much easier to build church stuff than it is to build people. Building facilities, multiplying ministries, and planning a yearly catalog of events are much more immediately satisfying and fulfilling than the long-term, often frustrating and discouraging work of leadership, giving themselves to the gospel work of building a community of disciples of Jesus Christ. So it is tempting to define ministry by the stuff we have built managed and maintained rather than by the numbers of people who are in the process of having their lives turned inside out and upside down by the progressive work of transforming grace. This work is much, much harder and requires much more patience and grace than achieving facility and program goals. And the gospel tells us why. We have the power to build church stuff 
but we have no power whatsoever to build people. When it comes to people building, we are completely dependent on transforming grace. That's exactly what Paul is saying here. The super apostles and some of the Corinthians wanted results. They wanted programs. They wanted to see Paul build church stuff. But Paul knows that ministry is about people building. And only the Spirit of God can do that. Paul knows that only the Holy Spirit can build people. Only the Holy Spirit is qualified to do that. Only the Holy Spirit can do the heart work, the heart work that is required to transform people. And if you don't believe that, I triple dog dare you to have kids. Because parents, you know, you can't change your kids' hearts. No matter how much you yell at them, no matter how many consequences they get, no matter how many times you take away their devices, cut off the TV, cut the cable, whatever, you know that you cannot change your own children's hearts. In fact, you should know by now, Christian, you can't even change your own heart. You are absolutely dependent on the Spirit of God to change your own heart. That's humbling. And so in other words, the Holy Spirit really is the best disciple maker, isn't he? Think about that. The Holy Spirit is the best disciple maker. And he is the one who really knows how to be successful at making disciple making disciples. And that's our tagline here at Grace. If you're new to Grace, this is kind of our tagline. Making disciple making disciples. We want to stay busy doing that. But you know who really does all of that through us? It's the Holy Spirit. He's the best disciple maker this side of the Mississippi and on the other side. And that gives us hope, doesn't it? Because then we realize it's not riding on us. It's not riding on our wisdom. And it gives us confidence to keep on doing the much harder, no quick results, week after week grind of gospel ministry that we are called to. Discipling other people, raising our kids to know Jesus, all of that hard work gives us confidence to do that because we know the Spirit is the one who is at work. He is at work in us and He gives us confidence in ministry to keep on making disciple-making disciples. And that's exactly what Paul says next. Paul is confident because he knows that ministry is not relying on him, not relying on his gifts, not relying on his preaching abilities. He knows that all the confidence that he has to do gospel ministry is resting on Jesus and not him. Look at verse 4. He says, such is the confidence that we have through Christ Toward God. Paul is not confident in his giftings, his talents, how the Lord has wired him. He's not trusting and putting stock in his Enneagram number. He's not trusting in his personality type. His confidence is in God. The only reason we have confidence is because of the gospel. Because we are in union with Christ. Connected to him. And so it's all about Jesus and not us. 
Not our giftings, not our talents, not our wisdom, not our personalities, not our Enneagram number, not how God has wired us. None of that gives us confidence in ministry. And so understand this, Grace. Your help comes from the Spirit of God, not your Enneagram number. Your help comes from the Spirit, not your personality type. He, not you, empowers you for ministry. Listen. If you can do ministry and serve others without desperately feeling your need of the Holy Spirit because you're relying on your giftings or on how you're wired, then you're doing ministry like the super apostles. Let me say it again. If you can do any kind of ministry and serve others without desperately feeling your need of the Holy Spirit because you're relying on your giftings, you're relying on your talents, how you're wired then you're doing ministry like the super apostles. Confidence in ministry does not come through our giftings. If you roll into a meeting or some ministry opportunity and you don't feel desperate and needy and you don't beg God to help you, you're doing ministry wrong. If you roll into a meeting, just a simple meeting, we're going to get together and talk about these things. There's no drama. There's no tension. I'm just going to roll into that meeting. If you roll into that meeting without feeling needy and saying, Jesus, I desperately need you right now. This is a casual meeting. We're going to plan some fun things. But I need you, Holy Spirit. If you don't roll in needy and beg, then you're doing ministry wrong. We should not be surprised. We should not be startled by our barren lives if we don't stop regularly and beg for the Spirit's help. But if we're not out to toot our own horn, but rather to minister for God's glory, then we can have confidence that God will use us. But if we do ministry for us, for our glory, for our ego then we can't expect God to bless that, can we? Because God doesn't share his glory, does he? God will not bless our efforts to build our own reputation or to enhance our image in the eyes of others or to spread our own glory. He simply will not bless another kingdom, a rival kingdom. Ralph Davis says, The man inebriated with the thought that all he has is Yahweh's gift, finds himself repeatedly on his knees, adoring, thanking, praising. But if we do not grasp grace, we plummet into idolatry, for that is the inevitable corollary of self-sufficiency. Paul is inebriated with the thought that everything that he has comes from God, that it's a gift, and so he's always on his knees, adoring, thanking, praising God, He knows that the minute he moves away from grace, then he will plummet into idolatry. And so he's desperately dependent on God. And where does that adoring and thanking and praising of God start? When you heed these words, be awestruck that God saved you. Marvel, just say, wow, I can't believe God saved me. Listen, if you lose your awe of God, guess what always slips in fast to replace it? Awe of self. That's the super apostles here. And that's the battle that you and I face every single day. Tomorrow morning when you wake up, when your heat, your heat, when your feet hit the ground next to your bed, guess what? You will enter a war zone. 
You're in a war zone. You're just half asleep. You're wiping the sleep out of your eyes, wiping the drool off your chin. You know what happens then? As you're going like this, oh, I'm so tired. The battle for your awe begins. And you haven't even had your coffee yet. (laughs) Yeah, the devil and the flesh don't wait for you to have your coffee. They need every advantage that they can get. So what will you be in awe of first thing on Monday morning? Will you be in awe of the Spirit's work as recorded here in 2 Corinthians chapter 3 as you see it reflected in your life? Or will you let social media or the news control your awe? Listen, y'all, the worst thing that can happen to us is not our preferred candidate losing the election. The worst thing that can happen to us is not losing our hard-earned investments, not bankruptcy or foreclosure or even losing our jobs. The worst thing that can happen to any of us is if we lose our awe of God. That's the worst thing that can happen to any of us. And that means then that the very best thing that could happen to us is to be made alive again to the goodness and the sweetness of God as recorded in these verses. To be awakened again to His glory as our joy. To taste and see again that God is good. That will give us courage and confidence in life and ministry like it did the Apostle Paul. You know what? I need to quote Paul Tripp again. Sorry, not sorry. He said this, Courage results not from trusting yourself, other people, or your circumstances. All these things will fail you. Courage results from being in awe of the majesty of God. That worshipful fear that grips your heart when you are confronted with His holy grandeur. Because you are in awe of who God is and because you know that this awesome one is in you, with you, and for you, you do not live in fear of people, locations, and situations. Courage and confidence in ministry comes from awe. Awe of the majesty of God. And that's what theology does, right? Theology always does its best work when it leads us to worship and awe and adoration. Theology should always restore our awe of God. Theology is always at its best when it includes doxology, when it leads to worship, when it leads to wonder and awe, when it cannot speak without at the same time Worshiping theology, like the work of the Holy Spirit and salvation that Paul is talking about here in 2 Corinthians 3, it should give us our awe back. After being exposed to these verses, we should have our awe and wonder restored. So systematic theology books, I think they should close each chapter with the words to a hymn. Because that's where theology should lead us, to worship, to awe, to to wide-eyed wonder. And you might want to add some words to a hymn right here in the margin uh, of this paragraph. I did. Maybe something like, praise him above, ye heavenly host, praise Father, Son, Holy Ghost. That's what I wrote right there on mine. Trinitarian, I wrote. Praise Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. 
Because seeing words in this passage like Christ and Spirit and God should lead us to worship the Trinitarian God. So circle those words in your passage and see the Trinity all over the place here. It's all about the Trinitarian God who makes us sufficient to minister for His glory. And Paul explains that next. Look at verse 5. Not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything as coming from us, but our sufficiency is from God, who has made us sufficient to be ministers of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. At the end of verse 6 here and on into the following paragraphs, Paul will begin contrasting the law with the gospel, the old covenant with the new covenant. And we're going to talk about this more next week. But I want to point out something that you can't necessarily see in English. In Greek, Paul switches from the word letter that he used in the front part of this passage. We get the word epistle from that. He switches from epistole to this other word where we get the word grammar from, grammatos. Okay, so Paul has switched the word. Even though English translators just say letter and letter, Paul has actually switched gears. He's going to begin talking about the law of God, namely the Ten Commandments that were written on stone. Earlier, Paul called the Corinthian church a letter, but now he says the letter kills. And so he's talking about the Mosaic law. But in Greek, Paul switches words, and English translators just translate these two different words as letter. But when Paul says the letter kills, he's talking about the law of God. He's contrasting the work of the Mosaic law with the Spirit of God. Because the Mosaic law, summed up in the Ten Commandments, could point out your sin, yes, but it can never give you power to obey it. And that's where the Spirit comes in. We'll talk more about that contrast next week. But notice that Paul is quick on the draw in verse 5 to denounce any form of self-sufficiency, any kind of swagger. He doesn't want any praise. Paul doesn't want any compliments. He doesn't want anybody to retweet him. He doesn't need his ego stroked. And who would? Who would need their ego stroked? after reading all that the Holy Spirit does in this passage about transforming hearts. Who would dare say, stroke my ego in ministry, when clearly it's the Spirit of God who comes in to work in the human heart? Let me ask you, do you want to quench the Holy Spirit in your life? Here's how you do it. Swagger. Self-assurance. Pride, ego. But Paul knows that God is the one who has made him sufficient to minister to others. And when you hear that God has made you sufficient to minister to other people, it should stop you in your tracks. That ought to stop you in your tracks because you know why? You're a pretty big sinner. I know that. Other people know that. You know that. You're a pretty big sinner. And so am I. And yet Jesus uses people like us to minister to other people like us. It's amazing. And that ought to make you shocked that Jesus uses you so you, you choke on your coffee as you're drinking it. 
There's shock and awe. You're just flabbergasted. In fact, notice those three words there. Made us sufficient. Some of the most beautiful words in Scripture. The Holy Spirit has made you sufficient to minister to other people. And so if you're looking for a good tattoo, there you go. Get that tattooed on your arm. And every time you feel ill-equipped to serve in ministry, you can just look down and be like, oh, I have a promise from God. It's permanently inked in my, in my skin. I am sufficient to minister, not because of me, but because he has made me sufficient. So the next time someone asks you, do you want to serve in children's ministry? And you're like, I can't do that. You could look at your arm and be like, oh, yeah, I can do that because God has made me sufficient to minister. Not in and of myself, but him. The qualification to be enough for ministry is really is to really believe that in you, you are not enough. Qualification for ministry is weakness and humility. And not just saying it like we Christians do. We do that, don't we? We fake humility. Oh, I could never do that. You know, we, we fake humility. Oh, really, please. It was nothing. Please. <laughs> Keep telling me about it. Really, it was nothing. We do that. We, we know how to fake humility, don't we? Oh, it wasn't me. It was the Spirit of God in me. Tell me more about it. I'm talking about really believing it in your gut. You can't do it on your own. I'm talking about feeling desperate even in areas of your giftings, even in areas of your talents where you're really good at something and feeling like, if the Spirit doesn't help me, this is going to be a train wreck. That's what Paul's talking about here. It's one thing to say that apart from Christ you can do nothing. It's an entirely different thing to believe it. I mean, to feel it in your bones. And it's really hard to believe this, isn't it? We just have this built-in ability to think that we can handle things. And the proof of that is how little we pray. If we really believe that it all depends on God, we'd be on our knees more than we are. But we naturally want the glory and to take credit for what happens. We trust in our own wisdom and methods and gifts. And sometimes we just don't feel it in our bones, just how desperate we are. And so you know what happens? God lovingly reduces us to nothing so that we call out to him. God often has to reduce us to helplessness before we pay attention. And so God will often take away whatever crutch it is that you and I are leaning on. He'll often strip everything away, whatever it is that's giving us confidence, until it becomes obvious to us that Jesus really meant what he said when he said, apart from me, you can do nothing. Those are some of the most sobering words in Scripture, aren't they? Apart from me, buddy, you can't do anything. But if you can believe that and embrace it, that's when freedom comes. And that's why Paul gives the Trinitarian God all the glory and all the credit here. Because he knows our tendency to be glory thieves and to try to take credit for what happens. So let's be a church that gives God the glory for everything that happens here. Let's feel it in our bones just how desperate we are. And then let's let that desperation lead us to pray more. Let me invite you to come back tonight at 5.30 in the education building. You can walk the property and pray or just join us there. Come tonight and just be desperate. Say, Jesus, if you don't help us, we're not going to make it. Or come on Wednesday night at 6 o'clock in the education building and pray. While a one is going on, there's a group in there praying. 
Sunday night at 5.30 in the education building, Wednesday night at 6 o'clock. Just come desperate. And then since we're at the end of our sermon, let me remind you, be awestruck that God saved you. The worst thing that could happen to us is losing our awe of Jesus and what he has accomplished for us in the gospel. Get this, losing our awe is the worst thing that could happen to us in 2020. Straight up, that's it. So let me say it again. Losing our awe is the worst thing that could happen to us in 2020. Not losing the election, whoever you want. Not losing your home. Not losing you fill in the blank. Losing our awe is the worst thing that could happen to us in 2020. I mean, let that sink in. If we're not struck by what the Holy Spirit does in regenerating sinners, as recorded in these verses, then we need our awe restored. 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 1-6 through 6 should give us our awe back. And if you don't have it, pray, Holy Spirit, give me my awe back. And then say, wow, this happened to me. What Paul's telling the Corinthians about over 2,000 years ago, that happened right here in my heart. Wow. Because when you lose your awe, guess what? Scripture goes out the window. Prayer disappears. Worship of self takes over. Love of self takes over. And love of God and love of neighbor, which Jesus says, it's how you sum up the whole law. Those are the greatest commandments. All of that goes out the window when you lose your awe, and then you just begin to love yourself. So marvel anew that God saved a wretch like you. Think about all the Spirit has done in your heart and worship Him. He took your rock-hard, stony heart and He turned it into a heart of flesh. He covered over the demands of the law that said, Do this and you shall live. And He wrote in indelible gospel ink, Done. Christian, be amazed today that on your heart it is written, It is finished. No condemnation, forgiven, adopted, in Christ, blameless, righteous, secure. And you did nothing to earn it. You didn't even deserve it, neither did I. You know, we didn't even deserve what Paul's talking about here. Isn't that crazy? We did not deserve this. And yet God in his grace said, you know what? I'm going to regenerate that guy. I mean, God already knew because he elected and chose But you're just living your life in rebellion. I'm living my life in rebellion, dead in sin. And the Holy Spirit comes along and says, I'm going to regenerate this one. We didn't deserve it. We didn't earn it at all. It's a free gift given to us. Believe that today and rest in it. With mouth agape, jaw dropped open, wide-eyed wonder for the glory of the Trinitarian God. Be awestruck that God saved you. Let's pray. Holy Spirit, we are in awe at your work and your ability to transform rock-hard, stony human hearts and to turn them into a heart of flesh. We're in awe of your ability to regenerate dead sinners are rebels and enemies and turn them into 
people who worship you and love you, to turn them into children of God. And so we thank you for that. Forgive us when we're not struck by this truth. Forgive us when the gospel just kind of becomes old hat, like, yeah, 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 I heard that before. Forgive us. Give us our awe back today so that we love you and love others for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.